welcome to Radical Math Talk, the podcast dedicated to the revolutionaries in math education. I'm your host, Kwame Sarfamensa, and on this podcast, I will highlight the incredible educators who are reshaping, redefining, and decolonizing the way that math education is taught in our schools. In other words, this will not be your typical math podcast. My goal is to center the stories and hidden truths that will not only ignite a cultural paradigm shift in math education, but more specifically, explore the multiple ways in which math can be used as a vehicle for social justice and anti-racist solidarity. So if you are ready for a math revolution like no other, then sit back, relax, and lend me your ears as we embark on this journey together. Enjoy the show. Welcome to a brand new episode of Radical Math Talk, the show for the revolutionaries in math education. I'm your host, Kwame Salfamensa. And if this is your first time tuning in to this podcast, I welcome you and I hope that today's episode is one that you find informative, enlightening, and insightful, and that you'll want to come back to see more or hear more if you're listening. Um, if you are a returning listener or viewer of the podcast, I also hope that today's episode is one that you find informative, enlightening, and of course, insightful. So before we get into the main event, as always, I got to give my reminders. Um, if you're on YouTube, make sure you hit that red subscribe button so you can get future notifications for future episodes of this podcast, but also our flagship podcast, Identity Talk for Educators Live. Also, if you are listening from Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere where you listen to your podcast, make sure you subscribe there as well. And we do accept any donations that will help us build this platform and continue to bring on the guests that you want to see and hear from. So if you're on WhatsApp, no, I'm, sorry, I'm saying WhatsApp. If you're on Cash App, uh, you want to hit the handle money sign ID talk for Ed. And if you are on Venmo, the handle will be at Kwame SM. So that's K-W-A-M-E-S-M. Thank you kindly. So on this podcast, yes, we're talking about the intersection between math, social justice, and, and anti-racism. But we also want to touch on the different strands of math. So there are so many levels to this thing that we call math that even I'm not aware of. Even as someone who was a math major all throughout college, there are certain strands of math that I can say I don't really have a whole lot of knowledge about. And uh, today is going to be an episode where we're going to be focusing on a couple of those strands. So we're going to be talking about biostatistics, but also going to be talking about data science um, because those are two fields that I think are important for us to know and, and really dig into uh, for a deeper understanding. And I'm bringing on a guest who is a very close friend of mine, family friend, um, and she is just brilliant uh, when it comes to those two fields. And she's going to come on to talk with us about biostatistics and, and data science and what that looks like and how that's impacting our society as a whole. So without further ado, I want to bring on my good friend, Dr. Uh, Shay Smith to the podcast to talk with us about those things. So let's bring her on. Hey. Hey, hey. What's going on, Shay? Man, all the things are going on and I love it. And I'm so, so happy and honored to be on here today. Yes. And I know the last time I saw you and the fam, y'all still in Charlotte. And now y'all uh -huh. on the West Coast. Yep. Got to catch us where you can, just like your family. Keep up with y'all. <laughs> <laughs> well, family's doing great. Family's doing excellent. I hope yours is doing great as well. Yes. Um, you know, we're hanging in there. A lot of transition happening as we talked about all fair, but mm -hmm. no, we're good. We're in a good place. That's great. 
Uh, so let's get started and we'll start from the beginning. So one thing that I like to do with all my guests is to ask them about their mathography. So mm -hmm. all of us who love math have a mathography. We have a story that led us to this thing called math. Uh, starting from when we were younger, for some of us, it might have been when we got to college or high school or even post-college that we started to really have a relationship with math. So I would love to know where your story starts with math. Um, and you can incorporate your upbringing. You can incorporate the college years and all the way through to the doctoral level, right? Mm -hmm. so I'll give you the floor to just share your story about that. All right. It's a long journey. It's, it basically starts from birth with me, I would say, because I think of my math journey as a tree. And when you think about a tree, a tree has roots and the roots can go super deep into the ground. Um, and every tree starts with seeds. And so the seed was planted for me a long time ago before I was born. Uh, I have a lot of educators in my family. Um, I have family members who are also really good at, enjoy, and work in uh, fields related to mathematics that teach mathematics. So I feel like the seed was already planted before I was even born, and the roots are so deep. Um, so I'm going to talk about a few branches of my tree, uh, and then if you want to get deeper or you know keep climbing that tree, we can do that. Um, but let's start with childhood. Um, so my mother was a teacher. She started off as an assistant teacher. She worked at every elementary school that my brother, my sister, and I attended, as well as some others. Um, she had a decades-long career as an assistant teacher and teacher. So I spent a lot of time in school, not only like attending school, but after school, before school, like being in her classrooms. Uh, and so I used to make worksheets for my stuffed animals at home. And the worksheets were always math worksheets. It was always like one plus one and two plus three. And then as I learned multiplication, they had to do their multiplication drills. Um, so yeah, that was already ingrained in me, both the math part and the teaching part. Um, as I got older, uh, I was fortunate to go to schools in Southwest Atlanta, Georgia. A lot of my teachers and classmates looked like me. They understood my background. They knew my family. And so it was a very nurturing environment. So every teacher like knew who my mom was, knew who my siblings were. So I couldn't get away with anything. I had no choice but to excel and be a good student. Um, so I was nurtured by a lot of people. Um, they, they noticed my abilities in math and they didn't steer me away from it. They steered me like deeper into it. Uh, so I was just very lucky to, to have all that support. Um, in middle school, I was in this like interdisciplinary program where all the grades were mixed together. So I was a sixth grader taking math classes with eighth graders. And my teacher was like, wow, like your mathematical ability is, um, you know, just as good, if not higher than this eighth grade level. And so I ended up spending only two years in middle school because it was a horrible experience, but I was excelling at my work and they let me just move on to high school early so I could just continue to, you know, uh, excel in math. Um, in high school, I was in like every program you could imagine. I did math club, I did math tournaments. Like I was a super math nerd. And I use the word nerd in the most positive way. Um, I always tell people that like my brain is the muscle that I used to flex. So you have athletes who are like pumping iron in the gym every day. Right. Like my practice was doing math every day and like really sharpening my brain. Um, and so, yeah, I just became like a super mathlete. Like everything was about like sharpening my brain, getting better at math, like winning competitions. And that's what I did. It earned me scholarships to college. I attended Spelman College on a full uh, presidential scholarship. So thankful and lucky to have that opportunity. Uh, I have a family legacy at Spelman College and at Morehouse College, which is nearby. So it's very special for my family and for me to attend there. Um, and I was a math major there. I didn't know, like math was the only thing I knew. I didn't like science as much as math. I didn't like history as much as math. I didn't like writing and reading as much as math. I like art as much as math, but I figured let me major in the thing that I like and I'm good at. Um, Same. and so, yeah, that's, that's the road. So many similarities, right? 
no matter like if it was a small seed that was planted or your roots are deep or shallow, like we all grow into this tree and we all kind of like branch out into these different areas. Uh, but so many commonalities. Let me skip a little bit and then we can revisit whatever you want. But sure. how I got into math education uh, was a long and winding journey. But I always knew that I would end up teaching no matter what I did. And so every job that I had as a consultant, um, as a public health professional, now as an uh, analyst at a big entertainment company, like every job I've had, I've always taught. Uh, but I did also take that road to be an actual math instructor and professor. I did that for one year officially uh, at Davidson College in North Carolina. I taught data science and statistics, and all of my classes were focused on social justice, uh, the use of statistics and data science for social justice. So I think that makes me, I think, a good guest for today, because that's exactly what your podcast is about. Yes. Uh, and I can't wait to talk more about that. But uh, I also taught as a graduate student at UNC Chapel Hill in my uh, biostatistics department. And we taught statistics to other students, like students who did bench lab science, where they were studying like three rats and the behavior of those rats if they, you know, dropped a certain medicine or did a certain experiment to them. Um, we taught them like how to transform that experiment into data, how to interpret that data and how to use that to further their research. Um, I've done all, all the things, Kwame. Like I said, I wanted to work in the pharmaceutical industry, government. I worked at all levels of the government from yep. the local level to state, uh, to hopping around to different state departments, uh, state health departments, uh, to the federal government at the FDA. So whatever you want to talk about, we can talk about it. But just so many branches. Um, I call my journey a random walk. And we can talk about that concept as well. It's a statistical concept where basically you can go in any direction with a certain probability. Sure. And you can chart out any kind of path that you want. There's like infinite possibilities. And so I've always allowed myself to like take this random walk. But my only rules were that I go forward and I go higher. And that's in my compensation, that's in my satisfaction, and that's in my competency. Uh, so always moving forward, always moving upward, but definitely a very random walk to where I am now. Yeah, so I'll stop yeah. there. <laughs> yeah. So y'all notice how she said compensation first. Yes. The bag. <laughs> yes, the bag. Yes. Like, give me the bread. But yes. um, just to give y'all some context. Um, my wife, Natalie, um, and Shay, they actually attended UNC together uh, when my wife was in grad school. And yep. a, a little tidbit, and she mentions this all the time, um, Shay was actually my wife's tutor in statistics because <laughs> my wife's not someone that would call herself a, a math person, per se. Mm -hmm. Like, she had her challenges with it, and, you know, Shay was always the one that was tutoring my wife um during those years so to this day she thanks you <laughs> you know i have made a lot of my closest friends with that same story like i mm -hmm. tutored them i helped them with math one time <laughs> and then they realized i was actually you know a kind person that, that has other <laughs> good qualities uh but yeah definitely a blessing to have met and grown close to people like wonderful people like natalie in that way yes for sure and I had a question going back to uh, your years in college. So yep. when I got into college and, you know, I was a math major as well. Going through those five years of undergrad were a challenge. Mm -hmm. And it wasn't because I didn't enjoy the classes I took. You know, I was taking all the classes and probably mm -hmm. the same ones you had to take. I took all the calculuses. Yes. I took linear algebra. Uh -huh. I had to take uh, differential calculus, differential geometry. I took number theory. Check. Um, <laughs> listen, I, I took them all, basically. Uh -huh. But what I noticed was when I got to the college level, a lot of those courses, as you already know, are more abstract. Mm -hmm. It's not focused so much on computations, but it's more about proving theorems and conjectures. Mm -hmm. which was something that I didn't get a whole lot of practice on during my high school years. It was pretty much give me the algorithm, give me the formula, mm -hmm. let me solve these problems, 
show you the answer. Right. That was how I got really good at math. It wasn't so much, you know, give me the word problem or something I didn't have any um, numbers and let's work this thing out. It wasn't until I got to college that I really started to get the abstract um, practice Mm -hmm. of of math. And I think as a result, I struggled because I didn't get that exposure early on. So I'm wondering if you had a similar trajectory going through your undergrad or was it just totally different because you're just that brilliant? (laughs) Uh, I mean, very similar to you. Like in high school, it's very much like crunch numbers, give the answer. Right pretty rudimentary. Um, And I feel that a lot of us, like some people do have like an innate ability in math. And I feel like I I did have a little bit of that and it got nurtured, but a lot of it is the practice. Like it's like shooting basketballs in a gym. Like you have to put in the time and the more you practice, the more you see a little bit of everything. It's like shooting a ball from different places on the court. You know how it feels at every place on the court because you practice all those scenarios. Um, So I felt like I I had gotten a lot of practice with a lot of things, but like you, when it turned from numbers into like all Greek letters, that's when I was like, oh, wait, stop. (laughs) I have not seen this before. I have not practiced this. And I did struggle. I struggled with a lot of those like upper level um, probability courses, um, abstract algebra, even like calculus three. The first two calculuses were, you know, pretty straightforward, but that third one, it just kind of took it to a new level. Yeah, that was um, a beast. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what else did, did I kind of, uh, I something a little different, or maybe it's the same for you, but I have kind of a photographic memory and I'm a visual thinker. So things like geometry, they were hard, but once I literally like wrapped my head around it and was able to visualize what it was that we were doing, it became much easier. And then also being able to identify examples of things in the real world. Um, So that's why I love calculus. Like as soon as someone explained it to me, it's like you're driving in a car and in a car you accelerate. So you speed up and you can slow down, you can stop. Um, That like analogy to calculus uh, and like the rate of change changed my whole view of, you know, approaching calculus. And I did much better um, the second time that I encountered it. And you're like, second time? I, I did all these summer programs where I was introduced to certain concepts and then I would actually encounter them in the course. And again, it's like, I already shot that ball from that direction. So okay, go. now this feels familiar. Ah, cool. Cool. Yeah. Because that was a struggle. I think my favorite courses in college were linear algebra for sure. Yeah. I love it with matrices and, you know, determinants. Like I enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. And then Number theory mm, was mm-mm. really good. I really <laughs> enjoyed number theory. Even and even though it was challenging, uh-huh. I still enjoyed learning about just the different things, whether it was the modulus math, whether it was cryptography, mm, this, yeah, the disability okay. rules, perfect numbers. Like I just enjoyed understanding how these numbers were interrelated to each other mm-hmm. and just their relationships in general, because I feel like that was a foundation that was never given to me when I was in kindergarten or in elementary right. school. And I felt like if I had learned these things mm-hmm. 10, 15 plus years ago, I'd probably be in a better position right now. Yeah, the foundation. Yes. It's like yeah. trying to build a house and then you build the foundation along the way. Uh, but somehow we still come out in these like strong trees, strong houses full of math <laughs> <Yes>. knowledge. <laughs> Ah, for sure. Um, And I'm sure we'll get more into that a little later on. But for right now, we want to go into the show your work segment. So why do we call it show your work? Because one thing that we hear about, one thing that we hear very often in math is this phrase, show your work. Students come up, they want to get their um, work graded. They, They see all this work. And it's like, okay, I see you got the answers, mm-hmm. but how did you get there? What path did you take? So you tell them, and you just show your work. Mm-hmm. And it's not that I believe you are cheating, but I need to know how you're thinking about these different concepts. 
mm-hmm. so that when it comes time to provide us constructive feedback in the event that you make an error, I'm in a position to do that because I can right. see the path you took. So in the context of this podcast, when we say show your work, you're pretty much showing your receipts. <laughs> you're awesome right now. You let people know like what you're about. And yes, you're a humble person, but this is the time that you just let people know, you know, what you do and and how you represent this math community. So I want to start off with Okay. I want to start off with um biostatistics. All right. So we have some viewers and I'm sure we'll have some listeners who have no idea what biostatistics is. No right. idea at all. So I would love for you to just provide us with a very succinct, if possible, definition yes. of what biostatistics is. Now, one thing about me, brevity is is my thing. We'll so try. I can, We're gonna I try. can keep we it short. <laughs> I can keep it short. Okay. So the short version is that biostatistics is the application of math and statistics to public health problems. And so you might ask, well, what is public health? And if you think about like a doctor that you go to see, a pediatrician, OBGYN, uh, a surgeon, whatever kind of doctor you're visiting, they're used to treating one person at a time. So they look at you as an individual and they make a diagnosis of you and they prescribe medicine to you. But public health looks at the entire population all together. Uh, So it takes all that data, puts it all together. Perfect example is this never ending pandemic that we're still in as of April 2022. Uh, (laughs) This is the biggest public health challenge that we've encountered in a long time. A disease has spread. It has basically hit every country, every place. And there are people who are crunching numbers to see those curves that you see like in the Uh, the newspaper online, um, how many people have gotten the coronavirus? How many people have died from it? Where are they? Uh, How many people have been vaccinated? There are a team of people from different disciplines who address those types of problems. And biostatistics is the mathematical and statistical arm of that. And it goes way deeper than that. Uh, When you take Tylenol, when you brush your teeth with toothpaste, there was a statistician who helped to evaluate the data to say that it's safe for you to use that toothpaste. It's safe for you to use that amount of Tylenol uh, or Advil or whatever you take across, you know, a certain number of hours, certain number of times a day. So we're involved in everything related to public health if there's a mathematical or statistical component to it. All right. As you were mentioning that, it reminded me of a TED talk that I watched with uh, Dr. Talithia Williams. My Spelman sister. Yep. Spelman math sister. Yep. Yeah. And she talks about this very issue about mm-hmm. um, knowing your body's data. Yes. So um, for anyone who has not watched that TED talk, I highly recommend it. It's very mm-hmm. short, maybe 10, 15 minutes, but it pretty much speaks to the importance of advocating for yourself mm-hmm. because as much as we want to believe that doctors and other medical professionals have the best of intentions mm-hmm. and are fully invested in our health as patients, that's not always the case necessarily. And you want to come in with some leverage mm-hmm. in the form of data. So, so I think that's probably a perfect segue into uh, data science, because you did yeah. talk about this idea of merging data science with social justice. So, um, yeah, let's talk about that. Ooh, so much to cover. Let me start by defining data science in my way. Um, and it's like two pieces to this. So the first piece is that data science is like a mix of statistics, math, computer science, and art. And we can talk about some examples of why those fields and also communication so english uh, writing and speaking storytelling basically um so that's what data science is and how i kind of think of it is it's like doctors so you could say i'm a doctor 
okay, well, what kind of doctor are you? What do you specialize in? Are you an anesthesiologist? You know how much of a medicine to give to numb pain or to make someone fall asleep to not feel pain from a surgery? Are you a pediatrician who specializes in kids? Are you an emergency medicine doctor who works under a lot of pressure and sees a little bit of everything every day? Um, it's the same with data science. There's different flavors of it. There's people who do analytics like me. So it's really just kind of aggregating data, telling a story of what's happening, giving a snapshot. And then there's other people that do like machine learning, where you're basically teaching a computer how to learn and how to process new information and then kind of spit out a result based on whatever new information it's getting. Even that field is super deep. You can get into different specialties. Um, data science can be data engineering, so ways to ingest data. So, for instance, this podcast right now, we're producing data for someone to ingest. So how many people viewed this podcast? Uh, how long did it last? Uh, how many people subscribed? All that is data. Um, so that's kind of my two-part definition of data science. It's a mix of all these fields, and then you can specialize in so many different ways. So if you if you meet a data scientist, you should ask them, well, what kind of data scientist are you? Like, what do you do on a day-to-day -day basis? In terms of how I fuse that with social justice in my courses at Davidson, um, on the first day of my data science class, I would show this picture of all the different sectors of society, government, <clears throat> excuse me, government, sports, technology, uh, public health. Um, you could like name any aspect of our society. And my students will have to give an example of how data is prevalent in each of those sectors. So in government, there's many examples of collecting data. Uh, one common one is the census. The census is done every 10 years. And even in between, we're collecting data to know who lives in the United States and what services might they need and how can we best distribute our resources to make sure that everyone gets the services and things that they need. Um, in sports, lots of obvious examples. If you do fantasy football or March yeah. Madness, I just won my March Madness group. Oh, I was really nice. proud of myself. It was the first time I won because I used data and my instinct. <laughs> uh, but so much data there, um, endless amounts of data in sports and technology. So where I work is Netflix. Uh, we collect data on when people are logging on and what you're watching and uh, how often you watch it and where you live and not anything super personal or invasive, but just lots of data that we ingest on a daily basis, like second to second every day. Um, so data is everywhere. And what we talked about in my course is like, what are the most ethical ways to use that data? Are there some cases where data are not used ethically in some of these sectors? What can we do about it? And then getting down to the nitty gritty of like how data science is done in each of those areas. So every class, every lecture, every activity is focused on something that's real and relevant um, and something that can give students skills that they can take to any field, uh, no matter what their major was, it was something for everybody. So I, I miss teaching that and I miss like the focus on social justice. But yeah, we can talk much more about it if you want. Yeah, and I think it's really important to talk about that because there are people who are listening to us who probably don't use any kind of math mm -hmm. in the professions that they're in. But I still feel like it's important for all of us to have at the very least a foundational Yes. understand of what data science is. So I want to give you an opportunity to share why you feel it's important for all of us, even our quote-unquote non-math people, mm -hmm. to have at least some foundational understanding of, of what data science is and how it works. Yeah, this is a great question. I mean, you came up with this, so you know how important it is. Um, I guess this is another time for me to show my work and show a receipt. I don't like showing my receipts. All good. <laughs> but uh, a couple of years ago, I taught a course on edX.org, and the course was on data literacy. Um, and I had like over a thousand people taking my course um, from all over the world. And the focus of the course was that data is a language. Just like we speak English, uh, if you live in the U.S., or Spanish, or French, or um, Vietnamese, or many languages around the world, data is also a language. And that language is becoming more and more pervasive in our everyday life, from 
our phones, uh, our phones produce and ingest so much data on a day-to-day -day basis. Our bodies contain data. You talked about uh, Dr. Williams' TED Talk. Uh, data are everywhere. And so at this point, everyone has to have a basic like fluency or literacy around data. And that means being able to read a chart. That means when you see like a study show that uh, coffee will cause you to fall off of your bike, like knowing when to trust a study like that uh, versus being skeptical about it or digging deeper to do research. There's been a lot of data misinformation around the coronavirus pandemic. So just being able to like look at information, uh, interpret it for yourself and be able to make smart decisions and know when to ask questions and what uh, types of questions to ask, um, just being more data literate. Um, that's been my mission. And again, like I said, every job that I've had, I try to make those people who say, I'm not a math person. I don't like data. It's like, no, there's no excuse. So I'm going to give you the basic foundation so that you can ask me better questions. So you can know, you can trust that what I'm doing and what I'm producing for you is correct. Um, and that, you know, you can pick up skills to even be able to do these things yourself. So data literacy, that's, is so important. Um, data is like the English language in the U.S. You have to know it. You have to know it. And one example of how it's important comes from a previous episode I, I did in my other podcast, I Dance Health Educators Live. So um, over the past few months, I've interviewed a number of educators and professionals mm -hmm. from the um, Asian Pacific Islander community. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I think you see where I'm going with this. Mm -hmm. One thing that they always mention as an issue as it relates to this idea of the uh, bottom minority myth is this idea of how data is used against them. Mm. How it's important for us this, to disaggregate because we look at the Asian Pacific Islander community and you're looking at different forms you have to fill out mm -hmm. for race. It doesn't say, are you Chinese? Are you Korean? Are you Hawaiian? Are you Vietnamese? No. Are you Asian? And that's all yeah. you have to check off. And because of how it's set up in a lot of these forms, right, that we mm -hmm. fill out, it has an impact on how the data is um, computed and spewed out. Yes. So that's how the misinformation um, perpetuates um, in these different departments. Yeah, and it's like you you don't pick up on something like that unless you're the person affected. So in this case, unless you are a person from one of these many Asian and Pacific countries and territories, or you're from another group that's been affected to know, mm -hmm. you know, can we be more sensitive about this? Um, or you just kind of live a little more, open your mind. For me, um, I was fortunate to live in Taiwan, Taipei, Taiwan for two years. And when I lived there, I learned a lot about things that are very specific to the culture of Taiwan and very specific to China uh, and traveling to places like Taiwan and the Philipp uh, Thailand and the Philippines. Every place is so different. And when you lump it all together as Asian, you really are doing like a huge disservice to all the many varied people who share some commonalities, but a lot of differences and have different needs. Um, and just it's different. We do the same to the continent of Africa. We just call it Africa. We don't recognize the 50 plus countries, the large landmass that is the continent and just how different every place, every culture is. Um, and we just... We're doing ourselves a disservice uh, by not thinking about it, by not understanding it, by not learning it. Like we're too smart to to be ignoring all these things. For sure, for sure. And that's the case for any community, whether mm -hmm. we're talking about the black community, whether we're talking yes. about Latinx community, the indigenous community. Um, none of those communities are monolithic. So right. that's that alone is the reason why we need to disaggregate the data and say, okay, how does that specifically apply to those communities within those communities, right? Yeah, I will tell you though, one thing you'll always hear is it's too hard or this is the way we've always done it. 
mm-hmm. uh, in order to change something, you have to change it. So in order to change the way we collect that data, uh, we have to change the census forms. And so that means that when we try to look at the historical data, it, it's not going to match because we did it one way this year and a different way the next year. And some people are just really miffed by that, the fact that we have to change and do it differently and we won't be able to use what we had before. Um, but that's the thing about change. It's uncomfortable and you have to do it uh, in a way that will improve society. And so I think we're facing a lot of that stuff right now, a lot of changes that we're being forced to make that make things a little inconvenient for some people, but it's necessary. And you got to start the change at some point, you know? Yeah. Um, not to open up a can of worms, <laughs> but I think we need to further investigate the Electoral College and how that's that, concluded. Like, so, yeah, <laughs> this is this is a perfect like everything we're talking about. These are perfect examples of things that we might discuss in my class. And one challenge for me as the instructor is removing my own biases from I these see, conversations. Yep. Mm-hmm. So, like kind of not saying where I stand on an issue, but allowing the conversation to happen and kind of, like you said, your students showing their work, like hearing people's thought process and where they're coming from so that you can have an adequate response. Uh, Not to say you're wrong or you're thinking about this in the wrong way, but to understand like, okay, I see why you think that. Here's a different way of thinking about it that might change your viewpoint. Um, so that's a very delicate balance that I know you also have encountered in your years as yeah. a teacher, just kind of remaining the unbiased moderator, um, but gently leading your students, uh, you know, towards a, at least a, a factual way of thinking and not so subjective sometimes. And I think as a facilitator, our job is to provide students with the facts. Mm-hmm. provide students with the different narratives whether they're erroneous or whether they're mm-hmm. fully factual you still want to provide them with the narratives so that they can come to their own conclusions about the data in front of them right so, so that they can analyze it and dissect it for themselves and then they can build their agency around these different data pieces that are in front of them Yes, I love the word agency. You're empowering your students to be agents of their own thought and decisions and how they process information. Yes, for sure. And I didn't ask you this, but I want to backtrack and and find Mm -hmm. out, well, we started off this conversation talking about biostatistics, but then you went right into data science. So I'm wondering what pushed you to make that pivot from biostatistics to data science? Why that transition? Yeah. And to answer this question, I'm going to date myself, but that's okay because I see my age and my experience as my superpower because I I have a lot of it. Um, So this was back in like 2011, 2012. I was still in my biostatistics PhD program. I was working on my dissertation. So when you're in a PhD program, you complete a dissertation where you drill so far down into that field and you just make your one little dent in the field and they say oh you can graduate and then you start when you work you no longer focus on like that one little thing you kind of zoom out a bit more but i was so focused on what i was studying i was studying um the example is uh the way we measure body fat so if you go to the doctor they'll take your height and your weight and you can put those numbers together in a formula and come up with a body mass index And if your body mass index is over 30, then you're called obese. If it's over 25, you're called overweight. We have found that that measure is not accurate, particularly for um, most like black women and black men, because a way that the fat kind of sits on our body, um, it's not not accurately captured by this like weight versus height uh, calculation. So I was looking at other ways of measuring what body fat is or harmful body fat and um, deriving equations to be able to distinguish between those two and see which one is better to use. That's an oversimplification of what I did. But as I'm working on this, I was using a software called SAS um, and I started to see like, oh, there's this new thing. Well, it was new to me. It's not, it wasn't new at the time, but this software program called R um, that was much more flexible. I had these huge matrices. You were talking about linear algebra and I needed a tool that could better handle um, 
that kind of data. So I started using R and I was like, oh, this is cool. Then I started meeting more people who used R for like statistical genetics. And so that's kind of leading you into that like, um, like big data world. Uh, I started going to these conferences. There was one called the Health Data Palooza. I started working at the health department in Washington, DC, and just seeing that like my application of biostatistics could go so much grander, like there were bigger data sets and bigger problems to solve. Um, and so that's kind of how I ventured into data science, uh, just by being curious about it, going to these conferences, meeting people, hearing about all these apps that were being developed at the time. Um, and so from there, I said, well, let me see what skills I need to like truly call myself a data scientist. And I already had the statistics. I already had the math. I had the interest in the art. I didn't know how to like make data visualizations and really beautiful charts at that time. So I had to pick up that skill. And then I had to pick up a little more like computer science and more advanced linear algebra to be able to handle data sets that were that big. So that was the start of my transition from biostatistics to data science. Hmm. So going from biostatistics to data science sounds like a natural progression. When yeah. you think about the the intersecting traits mm -hmm. of both of those areas, because it yes. sounds like there are a lot of parallels between the two from how you described it. Yeah, I found I found the places where data science was being applied to health, and so if you think of it as like a Venn diagram those circles were overlapping a lot. Like, oh, I already do this, I already do that. So let me just add on these other pieces and then I'm moving into that other circle. So yeah, it was a very natural progression. And I would say even since then, I've kind of moved out of the health sphere a little bit. So when I was teaching, I wasn't just focused on like health and biostatistics. We talked about all kinds of data science applications. Uh, my students would do projects on all different topics like uh, which Kickstarter campaigns got the most funding and like where were those people lo located? What types of campaigns were they uh, starting? So like, could you get more money if you did a kick a Kickstarter campaign to like buy guitars or something like that? Um, all these different topics. So I got to learn more about music and um, and fundraising websites and pirate attacks around the world and all these different topics that my students would explore based on their own interests. Uh, and now I'm in the entertainment and tech world. Um, and who knows where I might go from here, but I kind of like where I am now because it's really fun. Um, it's super relevant because during this pandemic, we've all been watching streaming platforms, some more than others. Uh, and so there's lots of data, lots of interesting problems to solve there. So I kind of like where I am now, but I know that, that that itch to do that random walk is probably coming soon. So we'll see like, you know, what step I take from here. Yeah, you've done a lot of, you just been, you just been doing a whole random walk through <laughs> life. Because yes. You're from industry to industry. Yes. Um, it sounds like, but you mentioned BMI, right? Mm -hmm. uh, which I think is really important. And, and I want to stress this. And I know there are many other examples we can talk about, but body mass index is something that we do need to talk about as it pertains yes. to black folks. Because I think it really ties to not just this idea of Eurocentric beauty standards and, and just body standards, but also the whole umbrella term of just uh, white dominant culture. Mm. Um, when you think about just models for instance mm -hmm. we think about body fat yep like if i were to like i actually had a very very short career as a model what <laughs> i think i knew that <laughs> I, I think i told you this oh um, yeah yeah like i actually signed to a local modeling agency in mm -hmm. boston uh, i did a couple shows you know mm -hmm. here and there but i was considered on the the thicker side but i'm a pretty but i'm a pretty you know slim yeah guy. I'm shaking my head for those that are just listening i'm like what yeah like no. i'm a pretty slim <laughs> guy i know people can't uh -huh. tell from you know the screen but if you saw me in person outside i can verify screen, that you yeah like yeah like i'm pretty slim and to be considered on the thicker side of the spectrum when it comes to models was just mind-boggling to me so basically, 
I, I gotta wear H and M jeans and mm-hmm. and you know that that are hugging my legs and my thighs <laughs> in order to be considered you know skinny enough to be a model. But you mm-hmm. know what? Women go through that as well. So now you have this whole movement of plus size, plus size models, and there's more um, conversation around body positivity. Yes. Um, you know whether we're talking about. Uh, like a Lizzo, or even mm-hmm. not even a celebrity like Lizzo, but even someone like a Sonia Renee Taylor who talks about this. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you know Sonia Renee Taylor. Yes, yes. So you know, buys not an apology. So like, there's a movement going on, and I think it ties mm-hmm. back to just the data. Yes, how the data dictates these um, ideologies that we have mm-hmm. about white dominant culture, how it perpetuates it. I mean, there's so many directions so I many. can go there. But let me just, let's see, where do I start? Um, let me take it back to BMI quickly. Uh-huh. Um, so how I got into that topic in the first place was that you're in Massachusetts, right? There's yeah. this study called the Framingham Heart Study. This study's been going on for centuries. I mean, like 50 plus, probably longer than that, maybe even like 100 plus years. Yep. They started off following families in the town of Framingham, Massachusetts. This town at the time was mostly white, probably like 90s percent in the 90s uh, percent white. Still very um, white to this day. Okay, thank you for clarifying that. <laughs> Uh, so they followed these families for years and years. And what they were looking for is an observational study. So that means there's no experiment. They're not doing anything. They're not injecting people with anything. We hear about that sometimes in research. Uh, it wasn't, you know, unethical. They're just kind of observing these people over time to see, you know, when does someone have a heart attack? When does someone have a stroke? Uh, things that relate to the heart, blood, brain. Um, and so this, This study has like thousands of participants now. It's like generations of families. And for a long time, that was a gold standard for anything related to like the incidence of heart disease. Like everything they learned was from the Framingham Heart Study. So what's the problem with that? As you were just saying, that community is very, you know, there may be some variation there in terms of their culture, but not really. It's the same town, same families, pretty monolithic. Um, And so because of that, over the years, they created some additional uh, cohorts, heart studies. Um, One is called the ERIC study. The one that I worked on is called the Jackson Heart Study. So they went to Jackson, Mississippi, totally different demographic, mostly Black. And they were able to collect data from thousands of people uh, in that town. And so that's the data that I was working on. And we would compare our Jackson results to the Framingham results and see real differences in physiology, um, like outcomes in terms of like the severity of the heart attack or the stroke, whatever it was. So totally different data. And if you're learning everything from that one Framingham heart study, then you're missing out on all this information and insight from the Jackson heart study. so that was really eye-opening in terms of like also my mission to be anti-racist in everything that I do. Like, wow, there's this whole cohort of people that's different from this one. Yeah, uh, I got to visit Jackson for like the 20th anniversary of the study. Uh, in Jackson, Mississippi, they took a mall, an abandoned mall. The University of Mississippi turned it into a medical mall. They call it the medical mall. So mm-hmm. if you think of the department stores on each end, those are used yeah. as like conference spaces. And then in between where all the different stores would be, those are like a dentist's office, a doctor's office, like different medical clinics uh, and offices for academics to meet. So I thought that that concept, too, was like super innovative to take a mall and turn it into just a medical place where you could get all the care that you needed, all the learning that you needed. Um, So, yeah, that was a really good experience. Um, Something else I want to say, because you brought it up and I'm a fan of fashion, uh, though it doesn't always show but you think of examples like uh rihanna's fenty beauty mm-hmm. she used data to understand that there was a market of women so if you look at my skin your skin whenever we try to find makeup that matches our skin tone historically it's been very difficult you end up having to mix shades together or you have to get something that's lighter than your shade so rihanna took an opportunity to say there's a market 
for all these darker hue people that want makeup and even like paler skin people who also um, have trouble finding their color match. And she has this huge range of shades of makeup and she's now a billionaire because she found a market that no one wanted to touch because it's like, oh, we don't, we don't want their money. We don't need their money. We don't need to make something, you know, that's unique for this population of people. Um, so use the data. That's how people have come up with the best ideas. Use the data to find a gap. And it's not all, it's not about the money either. It's really about helping people and addressing their needs and being inclusive. But you can still get the bag, too, when you have your mind focused in that direction. So to me, that's a really like good example uh, of finding a gap and filling it and then benefiting a great deal from that. And ultimately, the data is, is indisputable. Yes, indisputable. You know, um, the thing that people do with the data is they manipulate it to fit whatever agenda they have. But the yes. data itself, with proper context, mm -hmm. is indisputable. That's right. You should put that on a quote <laughs> or say, like, the data The data is indisputable. It's undefeated. Yeah. <laughs> it's always it there. Is. It is. You, you yep. cannot challenge it. You, you just can't. Um, I got one more question before we get to the lightning round. Okay. And um, this is more on the lighter side. So how would you describe the state of STEM education as it relates to black and brown women and, and our young girls? Mm, so focus on girls. So I attended Spelman College. It's a historically black college, historically all female that definition has started to change and expand to be more inclusive, which is awesome. So any woman identifying person uh, can attend an institution like Spelman. Um, I'm gonna, I mentioned this because my education at Spelman was life changing because I was in a nurturing environment with people who looked like me, but weren't all like me. There was a lot of diversity within the, pop the student population at Spelman. Um, but I got a great STEM education, and because I was at a liberal arts college, it was very well-rounded by studying topics like art, economics, history, things I didn't like that much, but, <laughs> but they definitely made me think about my STEM studies in a different way. Like, how can I apply this mathematics? Uh, why do Black women get breast cancer less frequently than white women, but we die more often than white women of breast cancer. Like that doesn't make sense. So being able to ask those questions, find the data that helps to answer the question and then be able to do something about it to help change that statistic. Um, that's kind of where, that was my training ground. Um, so the state of STEM education today for black and brown women, Spelman still exists. Bennett College still exists. So if you're looking for a nurturing college environment for black and brown girls, like find institutions that will nurture your identities, both by your race and ethnicity and your uh, gender identity. Um, there's so many resources online. There's communities for women who want to learn how to program in R or Python. Uh, there's lots of communities of black women who are in data science and statistics. If you go on LinkedIn and just do a quick search, there's some influencers that I follow, people like Brandeis Marshall, uh, Joy Bualamwini, who does the um, the oh. ethical AI. AI algorithm. Yeah, the justice. facial. Yes. Yeah, she's here. Justice. She's here. Yeah, she is. And she just uh, got her PhD. All this time, I thought she already had it because her work was so prolific. But she just earned her PhD. Hmm. Um, there's someone else I follow. Her name is Mona Chalabi. She's British. Um, she's like British and Iranian. Uh, she does like data visualizations and they're mostly like hand drawn. She just did a series for the New York Times uh, that looks at Jeff Bezos's wealth and like what that means for these very simple examples. So one of the examples was like, if you have like a small fish egg, it's like one person's household income, then Jeff Bezos income is like a big blue whale. It's just that much bigger than the average person. Uh, if you have like a cell on your body, Jeff Bezos's wealth is like the size of a full human being, which is made up of like billions, trillions of cells. Mm. Uh, so like putting things in perspective that way to say, this is how rich this person is. And you know, what you think about that, what you do about that is a totally different thing, but she's presenting the data to say, 
this is how wealthy one person has gotten in this world. Um, and when you put the data out there like that, it's like, yeah, it, it's amazing. So I follow her. Um, so yeah, find community, find people that you can follow who inspire you, see what they did, what kind of jobs they had. Um, in terms of like the grade school education, that's no longer my wheelhouse. I would defer to you, <laughs> but it can go back to what we were talking about, which is that you have to have a basic literacy around data, however you can get it. There's uh, programs like Black Girls Code. Mm -hmm. um, I participated in one in Washington, D.C. called Hear Me Code, where women were teaching other women how to do data science. And that program helped me out a lot. It gave me a lot of confidence. And it was nice to be taught by other women who, you know, were just a little more empathetic and like their mission was to help us be our best selves and get great jobs. Um, so yeah, the communities are out there, the resources are out there. And it starts by listening to podcasts like this and just like using the internet to, to find, you know, communities. They don't have to be in-person communities. We learned that through the pandemic. There's so many virtual places you can go to nurture your talents and nurture your interests. You just have to be a little resourceful and find them. And I always tell people like, find a buddy to do this with you. Uh, find someone else who has a similar interest. And that way you're not going at it all alone. You can kind of tackle things together. You find scholarships together and programs, you do them together. And before you know it, like the two of you can change the world. So that's kind of how I see STEM for black and brown women. Like the world is our oyster. We just have to go and get it. There it is, y'all. Ooh, man, we listen. We could talk all day, Shay. We really can. Yes, yes. Um, but we're gonna unfortunately have to wrap it up. Okay. You know, we know that good things don't last forever, right? I tell my son that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so we're gonna do a quick lightning round. I have a uh -huh. few quick hitter questions so that the audience can get to know you a little bit more. All right. Um, favorite math concept to learn statistics and probability most difficult math concept to learn probability theory and what we talked about before like when the when it's all letters letter math is hard <laughs> even algebra uh not algebra no. the advanced algebra more advanced hard. gotcha yeah yeah gotcha. a book you're currently reading right now if there is one you know, I'm not reading a book right now, but or I am listening. listening. Audio yeah, I, I listen to a lot of kids audiobooks <laughs> with my son, but those are helpful because I learn like what he's thinking about. He's learning vocabulary. Uh, otherwise, I'm listening to podcasts like this one. Um, and you want me to list the other ones? I mean, uh, I just, you know. yeah, I just try to listen to things that entertain me, but I can also learn and, you know, always stretching this muscle. There you go. Um, if you can invite three influential figures to dinner, dead or alive, who would they be? Oh, my gosh. Uh, Barack Obama's always on the list just because he has so many interests. He can talk about any and everything in such an entertaining way. Uh, if I invite him, I got to invite Michelle. So that's two. Uh, <laughs> and the third person, dead or alive. Oh, man. I would I would invite. Uh, ooh, just three. This is hard, Kwame. Right. I would invite my my mom. There yeah. you go. Yeah, I love my mom. <laughs> yeah, she's lovely. She's lovely. Yeah, she's the reason that, that I'm here. There you go. That's a pretty strong list right there. Definitely some great conversations. The Obamas and my mama. <laughs> Look at that right there. Look at that. All right. Well, uh, Shay. Listen, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Um, I know you're not really active on social media, but, <laughs> but if people wanted to connect with you to learn more about data science, where would they most likely find you? Yeah, you're right. I'm not super active, but I can be, I do like to like message people. If you reach out to me, I'd love to have conversations. Uh, I'm most active probably on LinkedIn when people reach out. So you can search me, my first name, C-H-E, last name Smith. That should be pretty easy to find by the face if you're watching. Um, 
And also on Instagram, uh, my handle is at Dr. Dr. Shay Smith. Um, you know, you might get me to be more active if you just reach out. So I'm always happy to engage with people. But yeah, LinkedIn or Instagram are winners. There you go. So uh, Shay, once again, thank you so much. Um, thank you. And my love to the family. And, you know, we'll definitely connect soon. We'll have to find some time. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much. All right. Wish you all the best. All right. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye-bye. All right, y'all. So we're about to end another episode of Radical Math Talk. And as always, I wish you all good morning, good afternoon, good night, wherever you are in the world. And we're going to do this again another time. Peace out, everybody. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Radical Math Talk. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Anchor, Spotify, and all other streaming platforms. We are always striving to provide you with quality content. So if you love what you heard today, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. And to check out the video episodes of the podcast, you can visit our website at identitytalk.com. For numeral four educators.com. I'll say it one more time identity talk for educators.com. Thank you and have a great day.